0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the UCSF Mini Medical School Advances in Understanding um, and Treatment of Pain, um, pediatric pain specific. We'll talk about, um, this is kind of our introduction and plan for today. We'll talk about the def, a pain definition, historical perspectives around pediatric pain, different pain pathways, pain assessment, pediatric chronic painful conditions and treatment approaches. So to start off, um, most importantly, kids are not um, little adults and pediatric pain is not the same as adult pain. There's actually quite a significant number of differences. So the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. This is critiqued because nonverbal or pre-verbal individuals and those who are cognitively impaired may not be able to describe their pain. So historical perspectives around um, pediatric pain is as early, as recent as the 1980s, physicians were still questioning whether neonates and infants experience pain. Recent research has shown that not only do they experience pain, but also there are long consequences.
1: They also found that um, needle-nail needle needle patients in our um, uh, intensive care units also have disrupted eating cycles, disrupted sleeping. There's increased pain perception, subsequent pain experiences. And then there are mem- um, memories of childhood pain that can lead to trauma. Um, later on in life, there's a, um, really wonderful researcher named Melanie Noel, um, who's in Canada, who does an awful lot of research around memories of pain and particularly early memories, um, of, of infants that are in the intensive care unit or, or, children that undergo surgery. Um, and they find, they found a very strong link with those memories of pain to trauma and also, um, uh, PTSD-type symptoms as well as difficulty with um, pain later in life. Um, so, let's talk about pain pathways because that's probably the start of where um, of how we can discuss um, pain, how it's perceived differently in pediatric patients from adults. So, um, this is a review of the pain pathways for those that have maybe joined in previous um, uh, talks. This may have been reviewed during those. So, um, I'm just going to go through that um, to start. I'll just start with the diagram. So when pain is felt, it's initially felt at something called a noisiceptor or a chemoceptor. Um, that's where there's a receptor that um, transmits either um, chemical, um, a, a chemical signal um, or a touch or tactile uh, signal um, that is then um, sent to the nerve, the, the local nerve. So we have something called a peripheral nerve, which is the nerve that's kind of outside of our spinal cord that runs in our body. Um, And when it travels back to the spinal cord, it's called an afferent pain fiber. So first we get the signal that's sent along the nerve. Perhaps let's say it starts in the foot. It's sent along the nerve up the leg to uh, the spinal cord. There's an area in the spinal cord where the, um, all that information comes in called the dorsal root ganglion. It then enters into the spinal cord, crosses across the spinal cord and goes up the opposite side um, of the spinal cord in in a um, pain track called the lateral spinothalamic tract. It then enters something called the reticular formation and then goes up into the thalamus, which is part of the brain. It's a, we call it the relay center. And from there, um, the information is sent to multiple different parts of the brain, including Um, different parts of the brain that are involved in emotional responses, stress responses, and also um, parts of the brain that would locate exactly where that pain is, which is called your somatosensory cortex. Um, This is just showing you different types of the sensory receptors that we have. Um, There's um, different ones that are located. So there's some that are free nerve endings, There are some that that are corpuscles, that are uh, tactile corpuscles to tell us pressure sensation and tell us um, different things like that or vibration. So these are kind of all really important um, where we gather our information to send it to the spinal cord. We talked about how then the pain fiber goes into part of the spinal cord. Well, there's actually the main, there's different types of nerve fibers and the three types that are most important for pain sensation are um, named C fibers, A beta fibers, and A delta fibers. They come into a, par- a very specific part of the spinal cord. Um, and that's what this um, diagram is showing us is that um, in the layer one of the spinal cord, which is shown in the picture, um, you can see that A delta fibers enter there in layer two. The um, C fibers enter, and in layer um, three through five, the A beta and A A delta and C fibers come in. So that's where kind of all of our pain fibers come in. Now, there's a lot of different um, areas of the spinal cord that don't are in, are not as much involved in pain. Um, that's that's these layers here. They're more involved in motor response. And one layer import, is very important in particular. It's called layer five, and that's where there are key neurons here key nerves here that are involved in something we call a wind-up phenomenon it's these nerves here um that can get very we would say sensitized or very excitable about pain and this is a very key impo- important um area that is studied in chronic pain development and uh, different pain phenomena because this area in particular here, if these nerves get very excitable, we can see a lot more pain easily sent up to the brain. Then we move along. So now we've gone from initially where we get the pain coming in to the spinal cord to now all of the places in the brain that are involved in pain. Um, We have the as we said, the somatosensory cortex, which tells us, which helps us localize where the pain is. We have the um, hippocampus, the amygdala. These are involved in the emotional. These are tied to emotional responses with pain. Um, And then different areas like the prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex. And some of those can be involved also in memory of pain. This is showing some, what we call a functional MRI. So that's where we do an MRI um, of a patient um, and the functional term is that there is a radio tracer that is placed in the patient. It's usually um, sh- related to sugar. Um, sugar goes to areas that are um, active. And so there's also this, um, also a dye that's a- attached to the, these kind of sugar-type molecules. And it goes to the area that's really um, active and uh, excitable. And we can see in the adult versus the infant, there's different areas that are involved different amounts of those areas are involved um, from this is where they compared a similar, um, a similar um, sensation that they're doing. Basically they're provoking pain in a location like a heel stick um, and comparing it between the adult and infant and showing how it is different in the infant from the adult. So important. So not only are what we just discussed, which are the ascending pain pathways, but the descending pain pathways are very, very important as well. So for descending pain pathways, that's where actually our brain um, sends signals down to our spinal cord um, that can influence information that's actually coming up. So basically parts of the brain can actually inhibit pain information from coming up um, to the to the brain. Um, so this is what the descending pain pathway looks like where um, actually, again, certain areas of the brain go, um, from the limbic system and the somatosensory areas send information to the thalamic area, which again, we said that's the relay center. And that sends it back down um, different parts of your midbrain um, into the spinal cord and it inhibits um, your those other neurons sending information up. And that's really, really important. And why that's really, really important is because what they found are that infants do not really have development of the descending pain pathways, which means that what can happen is Unfortunately, p- uh, infants are unable to inhibit those, all of the pain sensations that are coming, uh, that are being sent up the spinal cord into the brain. They don't have that downward inhibition and they actually could feel more pain than an adult. So moving forward, so um, a good question that people always ask is when can a fetus feel pain? Um, so what's discovered is that free nerve endings develop around seven weeks. Thalamic um, projections of the cortical subplate develop around 12 to 16 weeks. Afferent fibers, which are those fibers that come in um, and go upward, connect at 23 to 25 weeks. And then afferent and spinal fibers reach maturity at 23 to 25 weeks gestation. Noxious, which means painful stimuli, causes um, changes um, in a fetus, like increased heart rate or things like that at um, 25 weeks gestation. And then we generally consider 26 weeks is the age at which a basic level of pain processing is present. However, this is still controversial, still being debated um, as emotional and the cognitive centers involved in pain are not fully developed at this age. So how is pain processing different in adults versus um, infants? Well, again, as we just said, the descending inhibitory systems are not fully mature. Infants are more responsive, again, to the noxious and tactile stimulation, um, and they become very, um, what we, we use the term sensitized or hypersensitive to painful stimuli and it occurs much earlier and sooner than in an adult. In infants, the spinal cord dorsal horn receptive field, so the, um, the area of the spinal cord that receives information um, is much larger and more excitable and information that comes up can cause an even more prolonged response compared to adults. So we see changes in reflexes that are more exaggerated. And also we see um, both sides involved in certain reflexes. We know that the C fibers, which are our pain fibers, continue to mature over the first two to three weeks postnatally in a rat pup, which um, rats are conventionally used very similarly um, as a, as a similar time frame as um, human infants. Um, and that's why we do, uh, we do, a lot of our research in the rat population because they have a very similar timeline um, in the um, postnatal period. Um, Noisiceptive, which are pain producing factors increasing concentration in the primary afferent cell after birth in the rat pup. And then opioid receptors, which are present at birth um, and may um, alter um, the response to pain, but they're not fully mature at birth and it takes a period of time for them to become more mature. So you'll see that um, maybe if anyone um, who's on this call has any um, has any children or any knowledge of kind of uh, uh, treatments for pediatric uh, procedures, you'll see that oral sucrose is commonly used um, before a tissue uh, a tissue breaking procedure like a heel stick um, done in infants or. Even a vaccine, uh, vaccines in infants when they're very young, and it's to, found to attenuate behavioral and physiological responses to pain. Um, it's found that this um, you know, pain-reducing effect is mediated by the brainstem. It's only effective with certain types of food, so sucrose like sugar or sodium if a patient is sodium depleted, and it's called ingestion analgesia. It functions to defend eating, the eating from ending. It protects the infant so that um, that they can continue to eat, which is a vital, important function. And, and the pain-relieving properties stop when the eating is over. Um, however, what they found is that although the infant's behavior may change, they may look better observationally, their pain scores may, may, may look different. Um, when they actually did um, an, electra, an EEG or a, a recording of the brain activity, um, they found that actually the, that there was no change and that those same areas that would normally become active in pain still are active. Um, they're not, it's not like they're not active. So they still remain active. So the bottom line is that although it affects some um, functions, it does not affect all um, pain relieving properties. Um, and so it actually doesn't fully relieve pain. So how do we, I think another important question in adults versus children is how do we assess pain? So pain assessment um, is different in the in the pediatric patient and the adult. In the adult, the standard for pain assessment in the adult has always been a self-report measure where the patient is asked to quantify the severity in pain on a numerically associated pain scale. But in children who are pre-verbal or developmentally dislo- delayed, this may not be possible. So common adult scales include Um, The visual analog scale, the verbal rating scale, the numerical rating scale, um, and these are all what we call ordinal data outcome measures, um, and they usually are on a scale of um, zero to 10. As you can see in the diagram, the um, numerical rating scales at the top um, scale of zero to 10, the verbal rating scale would be the non-mild, moderate, severe scales, um, which are linked to those numbers. And then the um, visual analog scale requires a patient to be able to look and see on a line where their patient would be or where their pain would be, I'm sorry. So what they found is that the visual analog scales and the the numerical rating scale is better than the verbal response scale in terms of sensitivity. Um, The numerical rating scale may be easier to use than the visual analog scale because um, you'd need clear vision to use the visual analog scale. And all are great. All of these scales are great remembering for... um, acute pain, but not great at determining chronic pain or pain that's been present for longer than three months. So what, what scales do we use in pediatric patients? Well, we frequently use um, the Wong-Baker FACES scale. So the Wong-Baker FACES scale is a self-report scale um, that uses similar ordinal data outcome, which is um, the outcomes are tied to a number, a numerical value. Um, and they're de- it was developed by Donna Wong and Connie Baker. It was originally created for children with children for children. It's um, usually children three years and older can use this, and it has a good correlation with the visual analog scale and has good sensitivity. There's some confusion around the, around the Wong-Baker scale and that some people think that as you look at the patient's face, and if their face is crying, then they're a 10, or if they're smiling, they're a zero. Um, it's not our um, observation of the patient. It's the patient looking at this um, scale and the patient pointing to how they feel. So it's not our observation of the patient and how they look to us. It's how when they look at these faces, they feel. Do they feel like the happy face or do they feel like the sad, crying face? So drawback of self-report scales in children is that obviously, again, nonverbal or preverbal patients and those who are cognitively impaired may not be able to describe their pain using this progressive pain scale. Um, And the International Association for the Study of Pain has acknowledged that the inability to communicate verbally does not negate the possibility that an individual is experiencing pain and in need of appropriate pain management. Therefore, we have other assessment tools for patients that cannot verbally tell us and be able to use these um, visual scales. So some pain assessment tools have been developed to include behavioral observational tools and physiologic measures. It must be stressed, however, that a complete pain assessment is more than just a number. So although we're um, trying to quantify pain on, um, on a scale, pain is more than a number. So in pediatric pain in particular, we always do want to evaluate the impact of the pain um, on the patient's quality of life. We want to estimate the impact of pain on the, on the patient's functioning. And then we're going to target our therapeutic measures on that. And we have evaluate the effecti- effectiveness on the measures of these, of these things. So some observational behavioral tools have been developed. So um, two researchers named um, Butner and Fink found that behaviors that were reliable, specific, and sensitive when predicting um, medication, pain medication requirements in nonverbal patients were facial expressions, vocalization or crying, leg posture, body posture, and motor restlessness. And these behaviors have been included in a variety of observational pain tools. So we'll start with some of those observational behavior pain tools. Um, So behavioral measures of pain include behavior checklists that provide a list of pain behaviors that are marked as present or absent. The extent of the pain is estimated on the basis on the number of the behaviors present at the time of the assessment. And behavior rating scales incorporate a rating of the intensity or frequency and duration of each behavior. So one of the scales is called the FLAC scale. Um, it's called the face, legs, activity, cry, and consolability scale. Um, the framework, uh, it's a framework for quantifying pain behaviors in children. The five categories are facial expression, leg movement, activity, cry, and how consolable the child, the infant is. Use a score of zero to two with a total of 10 points being the top number. This is what this, what the, um, the scale looks like. So under the faces category, Um, You would get zero if you have no particular expression or smile. Um, If there's an occasional grimace, frown, a score of one, and two would be frequent, constant frowning, quivering chin, clenched jaw. For the legs, a relaxed position is going to get you a zero, and all the way up to two would be kicking legs or legs drawn up to the abdomen. For activity, um, a zero would be laying quietly, um, moves easily. Um, Very important because some patients will lay very quietly, but very stiff and don't want to move at all. Um, But kind of seeing them moving easily without without discomfort when they're moving is very important. Whereas um, a score of two would be more if they're arched, rigid, or jerking um, would tell us that 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 patient might be in pain. For cry, a zero would be no cry while they're awake or asleep. And two would be crying steadily, whether screaming or sobbing. Um, and then consolability would be if they're content or relaxed, they get a zero and then up to a two would be very difficult to console or comfort. Even, um, feeding, you know, using, if it's a baby feeding them a bottle or even breastfeeding doesn't console them. Their parent being there, stroking them, talking to them still doesn't console them. Um, nursing staff, um, working with them, uh, doesn't console them Consolability is a very important factor. So, what did they find about this score, the FLACC scores, that there's good inter-rater reliability, so that um, you know those, those people that rate rate the scores, the nursing staff or or the physicians, whoever's rating the scores, it correlated very very similarly between each person who would rate a patient. There's excellent validity as demonstrated by changes in pain scores from before to after analgesic administration. It correlates well with other pain scores that we'll talk about, and it was developed initially for use in children three to twelve. However, it's been extended to preverbal patients up to two months old with good results. So the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario pain scale is another one. It's one of the earliest developed um, behavioral pain scales for one to 12 years of age. It incorporates six categories of behavior. And again, the behaviors are scored from zero to two or one to three. The sum scores range between four to 13 and scores less than or equal to six indicate no pain. And again, this takes into account cry, facial expression, Verbal responses, torso position, so finding if the torso is inactive, up to restrained, upright, shivering, or tense. Um, Touch, so the response to uh, touching, um, if the patient's grabbing a painful area. Um, And then legs, if they're at rest or how the legs are. So this has, again, a good interrater reliability following surgical procedures for children's ages 1 to 5 years old, um, which ranges from 90 to 99%. Um, The scores correlate with child self-report of pain during injections. It's been found to be sensitive for effects of medications. The drawback is that the length is very cumbersome. So bedside nurses, when they're performing these scales, want something that's not as cumbersome, doesn't take a long period of time. You don't want to spend a lot of time um, determining if your patient's in pain. Um, Obviously, a, a a scale that's shorter is better. So we can immediately find out the patient is in pain and how do we respond Um, And they also found that it's a bit, the the inconsistent scoring system among the categories. Another scale that was developed is called the comfort scale. It was developed for use in the intensive care unit. It consists of six behavioral and two physiological measures. A physiological measure means things that we can monitor like the blood pressure or the heart rate. Each measure has five response categories. It allows detection of subtle changes in the child's distress. And it was developed for use in preverbal patients from zero to 10 years of age. This one, as you can see, includes alertness, calmness, um, respiratory response, physical movement, blood pressure. So we look at blood pressure. This one includes that physiologic measure of blood pressure, heart rate, um, muscle tone, and facial tension. So that w- this this scale um, is a lot is a bit more involved, takes a bit longer time, but it was found to have a, um, good interrater reliability, good correlation in mechanically ventilated patients. And later studies validated the scale for use as a post operative pain instrument, uh, in, instrument as well for children after they have um, large surgeries like um, chest wall surgeries or abdominal surgery. Another scale that was developed is called the University of Wisconsin Pain Scale for Preverbal and Nonverbal Children. This one is, again, composed of five behavior categories with four descriptors for each. Uh, overall rating is not a sum. Instead, a score is assigned on a zero to five scale based on the clinician's judgment relative to the assessment. Um, and the scoring scale does not it does not allow as much for flexibility. It's been tested and it has good ver- validity and reliability. Finally, there was there is a there this pain scale is um, more found to be used in um, developmentally um, delayed patients. This is the non-communicating children's pain checklist, um, and it's particularly post-operative version. It's a checklist of 27 pain behaviors across six categories. Each behavior is scaled on a zero to three point scale based on the frequency of observation of that behavior over a 10 minute period. And the scores of all the items are summed up to get a final total score. This is particularly um, used in, again, cognitively impaired children, and it showed good interrater reliability, but it was found to be very cumbersome in clinical practice. So let's move on. So we kind of know a little bit more about pediatric pain systems and how they're different than adults. We know how we now can, can determine if a child's in pain. So let's talk about some common pediatric painful conditions. So um, just like adults, children can have acute or recent short, short-lived um, painful conditions or chronic, long-lasting painful conditions. Pain can be noisiceptive, which means that um, it's, from, uh, it's pain that's produced by um, a stimulus that's kind of uh, touching a pain fiber. It can be visceral, which means it's in the abdomen um, or inside, in, in our internal organs, or it can be neuropathic, meaning it can um, be related to an injury to the nerve itself, just like in adults. Children can develop painful conditions that are seen in adults, which may be similar in presentation, or some have have some are, have, do have interesting differences. Um, pediatric pain management may be guided by adult pain management literature and techniques. However, it's often adapted to fit the pediatric setting. And when treating pediatric patients, parental parental involvement is extremely important and parental um, agreement with the treatment plan and support is an absolute necessity. Um, When we're treating a pediatric patient, um, we're not just treating the pediatric patient, we're also working with the parent at all times. And it's extremely important that the parent is bought in and that the parent um, agrees with the plans. and the parent often will help implement some of the uh, treatments or therapies, such as taking a child to physical therapy or having the child do certain activities at home, or providing the child that medication. So it's extremely important the parents involved. So some chronic pediatric uh, conditions uh, fit into categories just as in adults. So orthopedic ones would include, just as in adults, there's a, a disorder called complex regional pain syndrome, and we do see that, see that in the pediatric population. There's another, um, there's some other uh, syndromes that, and these are a little bit more specific to pediatrics, like slipped rib syndrome, um, which is a condition where the ribs may um, move next to each other and cause pain. Um, There could be um, conditions in the back um, where there is uh, a fracture of part of the spine, or a congenital abnormality, um, which we see, um, what we call a pars interarticularis fracture, which is common in in pediatric patients that we'll see. There obviously are fractures that can happen of the extremities, uh, orthopedic fractures that happen that can lead to chronic pain afterward. Um, And then there, in the pediatric population, there are unfortunate genetic disorders that can lead patients to have more frequent fractures. I I unfortunately treat a patient that has had um, eight fractures in their legs since they have been born and they're now eight years old. Um, And so there are, uh, just like the adults, they can have fractures, but we see often a lot in the pediatric population, a genetic component uh, can be part of that. Um, Rheumatological issues like rheumatoid arthritis, there's a juvenile form of that. Um, We see uh, pain syndromes in the adult world, they might call the, use the term fibromyalgia. The term that term is not used in the pediatric population. We use different terms, but we may see that um, neurologic conditions. Migraines are incredibly common in the pediatric population. Chronic daily headaches are po- common. Um, we see peripheral neuropathy, which is. Um, where there is an issue with a with a nerve, um, the nerve itself is injured, and that can be just as in the adult population related to chemotherapy, um, related to chemicals that are going to cause that, um, also related to other forms of what we call small fiber peripheralopathy, which is small nerves that can become damaged. We see nerves that can get entrapped, um, like in the adult world. Um, So there could be scar tissue that forms around a nerve and causes pain. We can see the same gastrointestinal issues like inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis happen in the pediatric population. We see pancreatitis. So we have a a very strong center here at UCSF for pancreatitis in pediatric patients where we do total pancreatectomy, um, islet cell auto transplantation procedures, which is where we remove the pancreas and put the islet cells, which are the cells that create insulin in the body back in to the patients and to treat their pancreatitis. Um, And so pancreatitis is a very common to us, at least uh, UCSF condition that we see. Um, We also see functional abdominal pain syndromes as we'd see in an adult. We see endometriosis as a gynecological uh, issue that is seen in the adult world and pelvic pain. Um, genetic disorders that we see in the, in the pediatric population include things like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a syndrome where you have um, ligaments that unfortunately are lax and loose and stretch more than they normally do, and that can cause uh, p- bony pain and muscle pain. Um, we see nerve disorders like uh, Fabry disease, and then we can see also something called Charcot-Marie-Tooth or a Charcot-Foot, which is um, another um, nerve-related issue. Um, we can see TMJ, just like in the adult population. We can see oncologic uh, cancer pain, and we can see also sickle cell uh, disease is another common um, disorder we see in the pediatric population. So one of the ones that I talked about was complex regional pain syndrome. It is known in the adult world, but I would say it's it's been over time, found in the pediatric world, and complex regional pain syndrome is probably one of the most well-known comp- uh, chronic pain disorders in the pain world. And unfortunately, for quite a period of time, it was not. There was a thinking that pediatric patients did not have this. Um, however, we now know that pediatric patients actually do have this. So, just going to go over a brief history of this, and then um, go over the differences between the adult and the pediatric side um, in. Um 1864, a gentleman named Silas Weir Mitchell published a book called Gunshot Wounds and Other Nerve Injuries that was based upon um, injuries he found in the mil- in, um, Army and military um, patients. He then published, then a f- prior book was uh, was uh, published called Injuries to Nerves and Their Consequences. And then later, they dis- later, it was discussed in 1916, the role of the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, as a reminder, is your flight or flight nervous system. So if you see... Uh, say you're out in the woods and you see a bear, it's the nervous system that's going to um, immediately increase your heart rate, uh, dilate your eyes so you can see far to run away, um, cause you to increase blood flow to your lungs so you can breathe faster um, and um, get everything ready so you can run away. Um, and so they found that the sympathetic nervous system is very involved in this in this dis- disorder. Um, it was later... Uh, discussed that um, rep- reflex sympathetic dystrophy was a uh, term or name they, they described and later it was renamed to complex regional pain syndrome. Um, so to go over complex regional pain syndrome, there's two types. Type one is where there's been no known direct nerve injury involved and type two is where there's been a direct uh, nerve injury. It's due to an actual documented direct nerve injury, such as a gunshot wound to a nerve basically then there's the final category is not otherwise specified when it doesn't fit all the criteria. So um, complex regional pain syndrome is where you, where there's injury to a nerve and then the responses we see painful nerve pain in an extremity. And then we see additional changes. We see, uh, as you can see in the picture here of the patient's feet or hands, we see swelling of that extremity. We can see color changes. We can see altered sweating. We can see altered uh, alteration of the muscle function in that, in that, uh, foot or hand, um, we can see change in the skin. And so there's a bunch of different stages that have developed the hot stage, the cold stage and the atrophic stage, which is where, um, the skin can fluff off and, and different things like that can happen. So in pediatrics, um, it was, as you could see, the initial timeline started in 1864. It was noticed in adults, but it wasn't until 1971 that it was there was a case report of a child, and then in 1978 there was another case series of 24 children that occurred with a lower extremity predominance versus the adults, which is an upper extremity predominance. So what is the hypothesis here is that the peripheral nervous system is heavily involved. Um, there's um, the the sympathetic nerves become altered. And there's also this type of um, neuropathy where the nerves um, actually themselves are injured. The central nervous system gets involved. We talked about those wide dynamic um, receiving um, nerves and wind up phenomenon. And that's where it's thought that now the spinal cord nerves get sensitized from all this information being sent. And then there's an impaired descending um, information sending down from the brain to the spinal cord. And then also there's also a contribution of psychological factors that can modify this. So very importantly, the pediatric versus adult uh, forms of this disorder. In the adult, the age of onset is usually 46. In pediatric patients, 12 years old. Gender, more likely in both cases to be female. The extremity involved, usually in the adult patients, it's upper, whereas pediatric patients, it's much more common to be a lower extremity. Usually the most common patient is gonna be your young, soccer player or, um, a patient that's in an activity, um, that involves the lower extremity running around and using the lower extremity inciting events are usually fractures in the adult population and in the pediatric patients, usually it's a minor injury, maybe no fracture, but a sprain, um, more common to see skin changes or trophic changes, hair and skin changes and less common in the pediatric population. Um, resolution of symptoms in the adult population is highly variable. Um, Whereas in the pediatric population, it's variable, but much more um, common to have uh, a resolution of your symptoms. In the adult population, we see a higher, uh, we see a lower relapse rate. And in the pediatric patient, more common to have a resolution of symptoms, but have a relapse later in life. Small fiber neuropathy is all is, is part of this. This is where we discussed um, CRPS. It's a type of it's believed that it's a type of small fiber polyneuropathy, um, and they believe that this is involved in pediatric patients. There's a, a researcher who is in uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital who's a neurologist who kind of looked through this and found that in the pediatric population in particular, when we found patients that were coming in with nerve-related conditions in the pediatric population that when we actually evaluated them and did a skin biopsy, we found a reduced number of neurites. And they, and um, the belief is that this related, relates to an immunological disorder. But this is, again, somewhat controversial because there, there may not have been the best <laughs> determination of number of neurites, density, et cetera. In pediatric patients with CRPS, there's been some of that fMRI data that's been done um, which is where we, take again, do an MRI with a sugar radio tracer that's placed. And one of the researchers that I trained with in Boston looked at the data in pediatric uh, complex regional pain syndromes and found there were activation in these patients, again, of sensory, motor, emotional, pain sensory areas. There was changes in the brain of these patients. So actually in the brain there were changes as to what parts of the brain were involved, what parts of the brain Um, responded to pain or were involved when pain was activated. So they basically placed the patient in the MRI scanner and would stroke um, the foot, uh, if it was the foot of the patient that had CRPS, and see what areas of the brain became active. Um, They found that activation of the brain regions remained after the stimulus ended, and they found also that when you stroke the non-affected CRPS uh, limb, it showed similar um, results um, on the MRI. Um, So this is just kind of some of her fMRI data showing the the response to brush sensation on the left and cold on the right. So um, you see kind of different areas that become become involved when we're using a brush sensation or cold sensation um, of those areas. The picture, unfortunately, is blurry, but basically what the MRI showed was that you see reorganization in complex regional pain syndrome in in the pediatric patients. Um, you can see um, where the hand normally would be, the, the representation of the hand in the brain um, in the somatosensory cortex would be, there were, it was uh, further extended past that area um, and it was on, and you could also see the unaffected side included. So there were some changes that, that were in the brain that they found in these patients. Psychological factors in in complex regional pain syndrome, so there's a gentleman who's a researcher at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who researches complex regional pain syndrome and found a high level of parental enmeshment, parental marital discord, childhood learning disabilities, and sexual abuse is very common in some of these chronic pain disorders. They also found the higher degrees of emotional distress, higher pain scores, higher functional disability, um, and increased scores in anxiety, depression, and somatic symptoms. The Budapest criteria is used to diagnose CRPS. Um, and um, due to time, I'm just going to move along, but there's a couple of different um, things that we were talking about, like sensation, changes in temperature, skin color, swelling, um, muscle changes, things like that that are need to be found to diagnose this um, disorder. And um, this is uh, some of the research from the from where I trained showing that actually a rehabilitative. Approach to treating these patients work the best. So, for further information, this was a paper that I published with my um, uh, colleague at Boston Children's on um, on pediatric patients with this disorder. So, moving on, the treatment of pediatric pain. Um, so, medications we use are often that are used in adults are often used in children, but they're dose adjusted based upon body weight. Medications can include Tylenol, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, opioids, medications that are um, of the gabapentinoid class, like gabapentin, tricyclic antidepressants, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or other antidepressants, and then topical medications. These are all used commonly also in pediatric patients, just they're used in a different manner. Um, they're all dosed milligram per kilogram um, and um, monitored uh, closely. Uh, very importantly, there are certain drugs, though, that, um, are, that we have FDA warnings on. So they're um, the medication codeine commonly was very used in pediatric patients for a very long period of time. It's an opioid medicine um, that is, if you've ever heard of morphine, et cetera, it's, it's kind of a pro-drug to morphine. Um, so codeine um, was found, unfortunately, to lead in, in pediatric patients to significant respiratory events. Um, so patients that would have pro- uh, problems breathing even after one dose or um, overdose events that were happening with codeine, and so F- the FDA has restricted the use of this medication, particularly in pediatric patients. Both codeine and tramadol, which is another opioid medicine that we commonly use in the adult population, um, has been restricted because of this. The reason being is that it, this medicine, these two medicines, are both metabolized or broken down um, by a specific enzyme, um, which can be, due to genetics, different in different patients. Um, so you can have, um, we can have people that the, the enzyme that breaks down the codeine to turn it to morphine can actually break it down frequ- uh, much faster. They're called ultra-rapid metabolizers. And unfortunately, then the patients are exposed to a much higher dose of morphine and they get uh, an overdose. And so this is why now um, these medications have been restricted in pediatric patients specifically. We do the same thing as um, in in pediatric patients as we do in adults. So we do, we can do nerve blocking procedures. Um, So in the adult that might show up for an arm surgery, we might numb the nerves to the arm that, you know, to make them more comfortable afterward. We do the same in pediatric patients. It's the same thing. Um, We can perform them um, in the operating room just like we would do in adults. However, the differences often we do this while patients are asleep. No three-year-old is going to allow you to do this procedure while they're awake. And it's actually much more unsafe. Um, There is a uh, registry throughout the United States called the pediatric regional anesthesia network or PRAN, where they've collected data from over 26 organizations and have found that um, performing this, this procedure um, to do place the numbing medicine near the nerve um, that procedure performed underneath general anesthesia is actually safer in pediatric patients um, because there's a lower risk of injury um, that the patient may move, et cetera, and become injured. And so um, it is different than adults because in adults, we would normally place this in an awake patient. And it's considered safer in an awake patient because they can provide feedback. Um, Local anesthetics we use for this. So numbing medicines are of the class of local anesthetic. Um, So you've probably heard of Novocaine or Lidocaine. Well, we use different medications in our pediatric patients. We use a medicine called ropivacaine, which is a similar drug. Um, it's just a little bit safer. It leads to less um, uh, effects on the heart. Um, so if there were, for instance, an overdose that happened, to have happened, so if this medication got into the bloodstream, um, it's less likely to alter the heart's function or injure, injure the heart. And then we use medicines like chloropropane, which is another one of these local anesthetics because it's actually broken down very quickly um, as compared to some of the other medicines. And so if there were a problem, it goes away very quickly, different things. So anatomy is different in pediatric patients from adults. So you may hear that in an adult patient, we put in an epidural to help with pain, particularly during childbirth, but we use it for other procedures, abdominal surgeries or chest surgeries. We do that. We can do the same in pediatric patients. We just need to know their anatomy is a little different. Their spinal cord ends at a certain level um, in the adult world and in the pediatric patient it actually extends two levels below. Um, and so it's really important for us to know this. Also, um, we where the epidural space is, um, down in the what we call the caudal space or the area right above your um, bottom, um, it's more available for us to place medication. So you might hear um, that a pediatric patient gets a caudal epidural, which is different than the other than an adult patient because it's much more, that space or that um, area is more anatomically available to us. And because, of pedi- and because pediatric patients have differences in their weight ratio in their body, the amount of, uh, or their water ratio in their body, so the amount of water um, ratio that they have versus an adult, um, we see differences in how the medicines are broken down and how they are metabolized in the body for not only our medications that we provide orally or intravenously, but also our, our medicines that we provide in the epidural area. This, this kind of goes over that, what I was just talking about, that Um, some of these medications bind more to certain circulating um, uh, metabolites. And so they get found and I'm sorry, the neonates have a lower concentration, so they get less found. So there's a higher free amount circulating. Um, And then there's different, um, I just talked about the differences in the local anesthetics and how they're metabolized. Um, And then kidney function, particularly. So Infants and neonates are known to not have fully mature kidney function, and so we have to be really careful with dosing our medicines because it's very different than in an adult that has normal, you know, a normal healthy adult that has normal functioning kidneys. Pediatric patients' uh, kidneys aren't fully formed when they're when they're born, and it does take a period of time in the infant period for that to be to that to develop. There are um, higher risks in pediatric patients of um, some of these medications that we just talked about, the local anesthetics. Um, Because there's, because again, the reduced protein binding, decreased clearance in the liver, um, because some of the liver uh, functions are not fully formed. There's um, some changes in the heart. So, uh, infants uh, rely on their heart rate very much for the output of their heart, the blood flow output of their heart versus adults, which is a little bit different. So a lot of this uh, can lead to differences in things we might see, even if a patient were to present with having too much of this medication, it might look different in a pediatric patient than an adult. Moving on to so another treatment is rehabilitation. So very, very important. I want to um, really emphasize that Rehabilitation is pretty much a very strong mainstay of pediatric pain treatment. We really use physical therapy, occupational therapy, and psychological treatment, and often we combine them all together to treat a pediatric patient with chronic pain. We focus on their function. We focus on return to physical abilities, school, uh, social activities, sports, return to normal sleep patterns. I ask about these questions. Every time I see a pediatric patient, these are all the things I ask about. I really, We really want to make sure that a pain number isn't just getting better, but actually their function is getting better. Um, and so this has, again, been shown to be very effective in pediatric patients with pain. And finally, we talk about psychological treatment. We talk about how there's a very increased risk in pediatric patients with pain of anxiety, depression, PTSD. PTSD, again, perhaps from prior pain-provoking procedures when they were younger or events that happened. Um, parental enmeshment, um, which is where parents are very involved, um, over-involvement, um, pain catastrophizing, which um, means that um, any kind of painful stimuli is considered um, a very, you know, a 10 out of 10. Um, sexual abuse treatment in this form may involve mostly cognitive behavioral therapy, but also we use biofeedback, talk therapy, pain coping tools, um, distraction techniques, and um, we also may use medical management for Severe psychological diseases, uh, treatments. So um, got, I've gotten to the end now. So we're going to open up for questions. One last thing I wanted to do was tell everyone about Pain Awareness Month. So um, September was Pain Awareness Month. Um, the Society for Pediatric Pain Medicine, which is a society I'm very involved in, we created a fast facts. Um, for every for kind of uh, general population or other providers to be able to see, um, and we also created tips for pediatric pain med- uh, management, um, and just wanted to point out that there's a lot of resources for pediatric pain there on this uh, this form. So Society for Pediatric Pain Medicine is a resource website. The International Association for the Study of Pain there's a special interest group in pediatrics. Um, those are all great sites for resources on pediatric pain. So just wanted to uh, provide all these resources, to everybody. And then I'm happy to open up for questions.
2: Dr. Bariki, that was an excellent talk. And, and I agree with you, children truly are not little adults, especially after hearing your talk and learning so much about that. There are a few questions and I am um, some of these questions are very interesting, and I'm interested to hear your response. Do you, I know you went over these treatment therapies that you offer, do you know, or do folks in the pain pediatric field, do they utilize vitamins such as turmeric or magnesium for children to help with pain as well?
1: Um, So there are certain vitamins that are um, absolutely studied and used. So um, one in particular, so riboflavin and high dose riboflavin in particular has been used for um, headaches, pediatric migraines. In particular, it's used as a prophylactic treatment for migraine, um, and so I, uh, we work with the pediatric headache um, clinic here at UCSF, and they're, uh, they are very focused specifically on migraine treatment, and they recommend as a preventive treatment to uh, many of their patients high-dose riboflavin. Vitamin C has also been studied and been found in pediatric patients to be helpful um, with certain nerve disorders, particularly CRPS. And so um, my colleague, William Bernal, who does it, a significant amount of um, uh, patients, he takes care of a significant amount of patients with complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS, um, often advises um, vitamin C usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had patients, families who have used turmeric um, and they've tried using turmeric as well. Um, but I am not aware of uh, any, I guess I'm not aware of any pediatric literature supporting the use of turmeric.
2: Okay. Um, now you mentioned chronic migraines and I know for adults, sometimes we utilize Botox for chronic migraines. Do you utilize that for some of your pediatric patients for uh, chronic migraines? Do you know if there's a age cutoff for the Botox
1: utilization? Good question. So, um, my, one of my colleagues who is at, uh, University of California, Irvine, her name is Shalini Shaw. Um, she trained an adult in pediatric pain, recently published a study showing that the use of Botox for migraine prevention in pediatric patients was actually very effective and successful. Um, and I do know that it is part of the treatment algorithm at the, at UCSF. Um, I do not know the age cutoff, however, um, that they use. I'm not exactly certain of the the of the age cutoff that's utilized um, because, unfortunately, I don't do as much pediatric migraine because we have a, a very dedicated headache center that does that. Um, but it has definitely been shown with research to um, to be helpful as a preventative measure for migraine in pediatric patients.
2: Okay, great. That's good to know. Um, Another question, we have a a couple from the chat group, and another question came in, does puberty affect the processing of pain or the doses of narcotics?
1: That is a really good question. Um, Puberty, so puberty can, um, that's where we might see, you know, hormonally um, mediated things. So around that period of time is usually when our endometriosis patients present. Um, so our patients that, you know, go through puberty and now have, um, have un, um, you know, are now uh, patients, are female patients are menstruating um, is around the time that we might see endometriosis. So I, this is when I might start seeing more pain, uh, pelvic pain, things like that starting to develop. And, and those are the patients that I'm seeing around the, between the ages of 12 and 14, et cetera. That's where the, that that pain patient population may develop, may come and see us Scoliosis, if you're aware, Um, it actually Mm -hmm. through puberty is when um, if you have scoliosis is the period of time right prior and going through puberty is the time that um, you can see the most significant issues with um, scoliosis um, accelerating. Um, And it's a period of time where patients were, they're heavily watched and monitored whether they need need to be braced or go through surgery. And that's when a lot of the patients present it with pain, back pain, although they may, although ask any um, back surgeon who does scoliosis surgeries, they will tell you that scoliosis does not cause pain. And it's in the textbooks. There are patients that will have, um, that do have pain, although they will say that kind of scoliosis doesn't cause it, but that is kind of the time that we might see patients that present with pain, um, particularly in their, you know, thoracic area of their back, their upper back. Um, So as they're going through puberty um, is another period of time. And then
0: particularly.
2: Oh, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's a very interesting time in a child's life. And there's so much going on, even with infants and children that they go through growth spurts. So, you know, there's hormones related. There's so many changes that happen in different time periods. So you can see there's a lot going on. So I can, I can, I respect the fact that this is its own field and um, you're here to serve them. I can, I can definitely say it there's a lot to, to stay on top of with this population. So I think we're very grateful that we have pediatric pain trained individuals like yourself. There are several questions from the uh, forum that I'd like to introduce to you, if that's okay. Um, sure. I have a question that asks, can chronic pediatric pain lead to long-term physiological changes in children?
1: That is a good question. Um, So what, you know, some of, if you, well, long-term kind of some of the, as you saw, some of the fMRI data show that chronic pain can cause cortical reorganization in the brain, um, which leads to, again, altered areas in the brain that are going to be involved when a a patient feels pain. So as I presented some of the complex regional pain syndrome information that they found in Boston was that actually, yes, there's, there are some um, changes that occur, structural changes. There's changes in, um, you know, upregulation of certain receptors and chemicals and signaling that's known to occur. Um, so, so definitely chronic pain can, and then not only, you know, there's so many things that, that are coming out that people, um, talk about, um, in terms of, uh, pediatric experiences of pain and how that affects the, there's such a large amount of literature coming out around, the memory of pain and pain memory and how, um, not only psychologically, but how physically the body has memory of pain, um, that are coming out of a lot of different researchers now. So definitely, yes, it can lead to long-term changes. However, what we say about pediatric patients is that they are, they are neuroplastic, which means Mm -hmm. that they still through their teenage years um, there are changes that can happen in the brain, in the spinal cord, in the nerves. Um, you know, different parts of the nerves are still being developed and altered and changed. And so they are what we call neuroplastic, which means we can actually make changes to, you know, to if there are changes that happen, we can try to change them back. And they're much more uh, plastic or flexible than an adult patient.
2: Thank goodness for that. I can tell you that. That's... so uh, another uh, question from the chat are there studies of pain responses among populations from different cultures around the world is the first part and then similarly similarly might pain sensitivity be partly inherited
1: so there are there are um i don't know if anybody in the lecture series talks about cultural differences in in the perception of pain so here's uh you know I just found this patient was so intriguing to me. So there was a patient that I saw who had, um, he was from Thailand, um, where, um, he unfortunately had an injury. He was on the back of a motorcycle with his father and they had a terrible crash accident and he had what's called a degloving, degloving injury to his leg. Um, which means that, um, like the skin and muscle and all of that had been, um, degloved from his leg and he was presenting for a reconstructive surgery. And I saw him. And, you know, he, his perception of pain was so different than a lot of patients that I feel like I see, um, in that he, you know, I offered him things we could do to improve his pain or make his pain better. He had, you know, issues with sensation. Um, and he, he very much was like, well, this is, you know, I'm used to living with this. I'm not worried by it. I'm not as troubled by it. He, Um, him and his father both explained to me that in Thailand, people actually are proud that they, you know, go through painful things and that they've kind of been through it and that they've survived through it. And it's a badge of honor in certain ways. Um, And they saw it differently. Um, And so actually I offered him all these treatments to try to help him feel better. No, I don't want it. He was a 12 year old boy. No, thank you. I I don't want that. Um, So it was really interesting how culturally he um, you know, his culture very much um, is, very, has a very different perspective um, around pain. Um, And then I'd say in terms of sensitivity, how can, you know, are there pain, genetics in pain? Definitely. Um, Another story was a very interesting story. When I was at Boston Children's, there was a little boy who we actually genetically typed. He came to our pain clinic because he felt no pain at all. Um, This little boy, his parents described, they knew something was different with him because he ran out into the snow when he was two years old without clothes on, I guess he's a diaper on ran outside and jumped and played the snow and didn't feel the cold and didn't feel discomforted by the cold. And so his parents were like, something is wrong here. Um, and as he got older, he'd have painful things to ha- that they would think would be painful and didn't bother him. Um, and it was found actually that he's insensate to pain and they, we genetically typed him and found that there was a uh, mutation in part of his genetics to make him actually, Um, not feel pain, which actually, if you don't feel pain, that's actually not a good thing because he didn't know what to avoid and he'd injure himself and not know and have like a chronic wound or have something that he wasn't aware of happen um, that he needed to be fixed. Um, So there definitely are um, inherited conditions of pain where you can have increased pain sensitivity um, or in this case, this patient decreased pain sensitivity.
2: Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you so much, um, Amber. What a great talk. It was an excellent talk and some great questions, really hard questions, and you were able to answer all of them. So thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.